Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Going for Two. I am your uh, your host, Matt Brown, the publisher of the Extra Points newsletter. Uh, it's nice to be able to come back after a little bit of time away and find that not only did the house not catch on fire, but everything's been cleaned up. Uh, everything still smells pretty good. I didn't leave anything weird in the fridge. Brian, um, things went great. It seems like when I was gone, absolutely nothing in the news happened. And we just had a regular smooth, uh, smooth podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, beyond just kind of the, the craziness of a Supreme Court decision, a, a monumental uh, decision when it comes to NIL across the country, you know, beyond that, we were, we were doing just fine uh, in your absence. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to book some, uh, I think some really excellent and thoughtful guests, some great conversations where I was gone. I did a little bit of work uh, when I was out in Utah. I, I published a story today of, uh, that I had a conversation I had at Big Sky headquarters about their new television deal. But most of that time, I really didn't spend in places without cell phone service, eating at restaurants that didn't serve chicken tenders, getting outside. Uh, and I, I highly recommend it. Utah's wonderful. Everybody should go outside more often, uh, especially in the summer, because before we know it, we're going to be glued to our televisions watching football for 13 hours a day and then following that up with watching basketball for 13 hours a day. Um, Got to take that time we can get it, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of, of you not only getting getting refreshed from from having that time off, but uh, really kind of missing out some on, on some of the things that uh, are, are really going to impact college athletics. Because now, as we've mentioned quite a few times on the show, the news never stops. I mean, it really is kind of crazy the amount of change that is not only going to happen on July 1st when NIL takes it into account, but uh, how, how these athletic departments are really going to sort out a number of different issues over the coming months and in the coming years. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit with, with our guests later. Later on, but I'm just excited because uh, there is a ton going on and a ton to discuss that hopefully you will keep tuning in on this podcast for. Yeah, we, we are certainly been blessed to live and work and operate in interesting times. Um, I'm excited for our guest today. You know, for those of you who've been following along with Extra Points, um, I, I think you'd probably be aware that one of the big flagship projects that I've really tried to work on these past couple of months is to create a FOILA directory, a central repository. It's completely free. You don't need a subscription to access it. That is a central landing spot for all kinds of athletic department contracts and financial records and, and data that reporters and researchers and fans are often combing through the internet to, to look for uh, over the course of the year. There's a lot of coaching contracts on there. There's a lot of a, a shoe deals and apparel contracts. But one of the most important ones that I've, I've, I've published, and I have this for nearly every Division I institution now, is something called an FRS report. And that is something that every school has to file with the NCAA. And that's one of the closest things that we can get to a standardized uh, P&L statement. It's not really a P&L statement, but if you want to get a better idea of how much money schools are taking in from certain revenue sources and where they're spending it broken down by sport, that's the report to use. And I have that. And, and I'm, I, as I'm getting this for other schools, for other historical years, I'm uploading it to that database too. One thing I've learned while trying to create this database and digging through these records is that um, I don't totally know how to read all of these. And I thought I was a reasonably literate person, but look, look, man, I, I got a C plus and I have a liberal arts degree. I'm not an accountant. Um, and financial, the, the, the books for athletic departments are a lot more complicated than the books for Good Spot Publishing LLC. It's not just money in, money out. There's a lot of different departments. How we categorize different things changes a lot. And that's about to become even more complicated because we just had a bunch of federal aid come in and big capital projects and COVID spending. And 
it's very easy to get confused, I think, when you were looking at those numbers. So I wanted to bring in a friend of Extra Points, somebody we've talked about here a couple of times, my friend Katie Davis, uh, who is a CPA and a partner at James Moore, uh, located in Gainesville, Florida. That's an accounting practice that literally specializes in athletic department math. There's, these are the people that understand and, and, and get in the weeds with this stuff more than almost anybody else. So we wanted to bring her on to maybe shed some light on not just these reports, but some of these major financial issues so that us lay people who have different acronyms at the end of our resumes and LinkedIn profiles can understand what's going on a little bit more. Well, Katie, th- thanks again here for, for taking some time to chat with us. I've always really appreciated having your insights uh, in and around extra points. One of the things that I, I've been wondering as I think back to where we were last year around this time, it was kind of a, a, really a dark, kind of depressing time in, in our industry. And so many of the predictions about what the next year would look like were, I think, borderline like apocalyptic. You would see, I think, credible analysts say schools might close. Universities uh, might face $50 million plus athletic department you know, de- deficits. This could be a enormous uh, industry changing uh, uh, trend here. And while last year financially was rough for a lot of schools it doesn't seem like we actually hit nearly as as apocalyptic you know financially as as maybe people thought that we would last june or july do you think that's just a function of the fact that we had a football season and we had some federal bailouts or are there some other forces here that that maybe prevented the worst case scenarios from happening um, yeah, I remember that very well. And uh, it was scary. And I think, you know, not only for universities, but all businesses, you know, it was kind of apocalyptic and just the unknown. And I do think that a lot of the federal aid that was received was certainly helpful. I also think America responded to switching to a virtual environment pretty well. Um, and so things could keep going. And so specific to higher ed, you know, they could continue getting that tuition money for, um, you know, holding classes um, as different states open back up, you know, and having people be in person, it was able to, you know, engage the student body. And of course that has a ripple effect on the success of athletics departments too. Um, And so, you know, I think having a football season helped Uh, There were still a lot of shortfalls from where budgets were as it pertained specifically to football season but it still kept people engaged and um, things moving forward and, and certainly didn't feel as apocalyptic once that came around and football kicked off. I'd like to talk maybe a little bit more specifically about some of those federal aid packages, because this is something I've, I've been digging into a little bit and it's a little bit outside my wheelhouse. You know, my understanding is we had two relatively big federal acts. We had the CARES Act and then we had, I went, is, is, do, I, do I spell it out? Is it H-E-E-R-F? Is it HREF? Is it HERF? Like um, a, a secondary cash distribution that went to many universities. And I see that some of those schools used some of that money for their athletic department and some of those schools didn't. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what, those, what those bills were and what that money was supposed to be used for? Yeah, so it's alphabet soup. Um, there's CARES Act, which was one of three federal stimulus packages. And each of the three stimulus packages had a piece earmarked as HERF for Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. That's what that stands for. So I think of them as Trump one, Trump two, and Biden one, as far as the stimulus packages when they came out. The CARES Act was the first one. It was probably the most memorable because other components of that, like PPP loans and other 
that people might be familiar with. Um, in that, there was $14 billion for higher ed. Um, not much of that went, at least initially, went to athletics because it was very specific that um, 50% of that was to be direct emergency aid to students. And then the other 50% was for, um, you know, handling more institutional aid. So housing refunds, investing in more technology for having to go virtual uh, and things like that. Um, a second round, 23 billion came out uh, at the end of 2020. And again, same, same situation and how the government allocates the, that entire pot across the universities um, across the country is based on how, how much they receive funding from Pell Grants. So it's definitely geared more toward the number of students that have need-based aid from the federal government equated to the amount of federal aid they got in the stimulus package. So, you know, a lot of athletes do, re do rely on Pell Grants. Um, so in that sense, you did see their institutions get the money. Um, more guidance is coming out from the Department of Education on how they can use that money. So the third one came out in March. Um, that was $40 billion. So that third stimulus package was bigger than the first two combined. And um, there's more guidance now saying, okay, universities can also offset lost revenue. So whether it's academic or it's auxiliary, like food service, housing, bookstore, parking, royalties, uses of facilities or venues. So none of that specifically says lost ticket revenue or lost booster contributions. Um, it actually specifically disallows in, in the guidance, specifically disallows capital outlays associated with athletics facilities, including any fees on tuition assessed for athletics facilities. It also disallows a reduction in contributions or donations. So some of the primary sources of revenue or large expenses that are made by athletics facilities that where they were really hit, that's specifically disallowed. However, there are other indirect benefits. Um, I think with, you know, as it relates to the portion of the total student body that's student athletes that rely on those academic or auxiliary areas. Um, and some of those costs that are, um, paid for through the university for those athletes um, that, you know, there's that indirect benefit that when this, the university may go to, to bill um, athletic department for their share of those expenses and, and maybe they didn't have to bill as much. Yeah. I know some athletic departments are really working closely with their universities to be strategic and how they can get some of those funds, but it's not as, black and white is saying athletics is going to benefit from this federal aid. That, that, that makes sense. I mean, if, if nothing else, particularly for some of these smaller institutions, you can't really have a, a healthy athletic department if the central academic office isn't particularly healthy either. So if that, that shores up the balance sheets indirectly, you could argue that that would help the athletic department. If I'm understanding this correctly, if we look back to last year, if you were a school that if you, I don't know, you rented out your swimming pool over the summer because you had the only Olympic swimming pool within a 200 mile radius and you used to get camp revenue from that, or you used to get, you know, you, you, you revenue from some other source. Could you potentially use that money to replace that revenue? It has nothing to do with football, but that's a, a physical facility that was unable to generate revenue that you would normally budget for. 
Correct. If you, yeah, like you said, the swimming pool example, if you rented out your arena for um, concerts or other large events, um, all of that is lost revenue for use of facilities or venues um, that, that would be allowed. So there is that benefit. Um, some athletic departments benefit from that. Sometimes the university controls the, the property um, that athletic departments use. So in that case, that revenue may have not gone to athletics in the first place. So you, you mentioned there the, the larger universities and, and we're speaking to you at the end of June. This is a typically very busy month for both the higher ed community in terms of budgeting processes, as well as the athletic department. W- what is this kind of run up to the start of the fiscal year like, not only for you, but for these athletic departments? I mean, I think budgeting is still consistently moving um, and, you know, different state institutions are reliant on when legislation passes in their state and when state budgets are finalized. Um, you know, things continue to evolve as it relates to our campuses opening back up. What does enrollment look like? Um, so it's kind of, you know, from a global higher ed perspective, it's a moving target. And certainly within the athletics, it is too. And, you know, I think at this point, specific to athletics, you have your business office constantly looking at and modifying their budget, but they're really also focused on getting their students back on campus. Some of them may have not been back to campus for a very long time. Um, and, and focusing on, you know, today's uh, June 29th. So in two days from now, NIL is going live. So I think that's also something that's pretty front of mind right now. And um, so there's just so much uncertainty that it's hard to really nail anything down. And I think by now they're all used to that. And so the, the conversation is just, well, you know, it's constantly evolving. This, this kind of speaks to something that I know you and I have talked about, and that can be really frustrating for a dumb reporter like me or, or a layman, is that trying to read and understand this financial information, it varies a ton from school to school because different schools might have different rules about how they categorize or control certain assets. Something might be counted as, as within the athletic department in one place. Maybe that's not controlled by the athletic department somewhere else. And how internal subsidies get moved around might fall under different buckets. I know that at extra points, we've collected this list of as many of these um, FRS reports, these, these, these financial breakdowns that the schools have to file with the NCAA. We have almost all of them for Division One, And you can look at that and it tells you how much ticket revenue is and it tells you how much they spent on X, Y, and Z. Um, but you know, as you're alluding to here, it can be difficult to suss out specific takeaways because every school is different. You know, as, I know you spent a lot of time with those reports. What are some things that you think a journalist or an educated layperson can I can conclusively take away from reading some of those things? Well, I mean, I think in general, you can look at trends for the school because in most cases, the school is not going to account for something one way one year and then a different way the next year, unless the NCAA changes the rules, um, <clears throat> which over the last several years, there haven't been drastic changes made by the NCAA. So you can learn about their major sources of revenues and expenses, the amount of debt they have, their endowments, their capital expenditures, and look at the year over year trends. Um, But I think I mentioned to you before, you know, the NCAA's intent is for this to be apples to apples, but in some cases it's apples to rocket ships because it's so drastically different in how um, does a university have to subsidize their athletics department 
or does the athletics department potentially subsidize the university? Um, you know, the timing of where the money, when the money comes in and when the money goes out and how that's reported uh, can also make some huge differences. And, you know, I think specific to this year when once, so most, uh, most universities have a fiscal year end of June 30. So they're going to start their year in close. And, you know, in the next six months, the process of financial reporting is going to start for fiscal year 21. And that's where we're really going to see the bulk of the pandemic's impact. And right. um, surprising to us, the NCAA um, did not create a new expense category for COVID-19 expenses, um, which is what we expected to see. So, and they also didn't really clarify in their actual document how that should be categorized. So. Very, very cool. Yeah. Can't wait is. to go look through those and, and look at these gigantic outliers. Yes. Yeah. And, and we're, we're going to see the, where should I, where do I put the COVID tests in like nine different buckets next year? Oh, well, it's fun because, so, you know, we frequently email or call the NCAA on behalf of our clients and they'll give us their thoughts. Um, but, you know, testing is a great example of where, you know, you would think, and so universities have to track their COVID expenses separately for, to come to prove they're spending the money for this federal aid money. So now they're going to have to take it out of that bucket and put it in other buckets. So testing expenses for student athletes could go in category 37, which is medical expenses and insurance. Um, but testing and protocol for event staff would go to category 30 game expenses. Um, so you may not even see where all the testing goes. And then there, there could be other expenses that don't meet any of those definitions. And then it goes into that miscellaneous bucket that's category 40, which is the other operating expenses. So you're not going to really be able to see, um, you know, the COVID expenses that were incurred. Um, if, if that's something of interest, you will still generally be able to see revenue categories that have gone down because, um, you know, ticket sales go down for ticket sales. NCAA distributions are going to go down. You know, that's going to be very easy to, to tell. Um, but you're also going to see money coming in potentially if with any of these funds that um, federal monies that go to the university um, then being allocated to athletics, um, that is going to go in as the government support because it's federal government. So you'll see that. Um, but again, it's, it's going to be messy because it's potentially also university covers some of those expenses for COVID yeah. or the conference covers some of the testing. So it's, it's not going to be very clear. It, 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 it sounds like what I'm hearing then, right? You, you look at this, you can, you can follow some trend lines. We can kind of get an idea for who's selling more baseball tickets than, than another school. And you can get some, some back of the napkin, you know, maybe some information here about fan support. But if you're trying to even draw, like write a relatively straightforward story about COVID spending, the answer is probably going to be, it depends or consult a bunch of extra accountants because, it's not going to be, you're not just going to be able to look at, at, at one bucket, right? You, we, we see this every year with the, with the people that write the stories about who spent the most on recruiting. Well, like that doesn't, just looking at the recruiting line item doesn't really tell the whole story either. Um, can't wait. Sounds like some grad students, um, as maybe your office is going to just have 
a wonderful time well, well with, with this next round of reports. Well, it's interesting with the recruiting. I mean, you'll be able to see how much, how well recruiting did with the decrease in recruiting expenses and they still performed well. So um, yeah. that'll be, that's one thing I'm looking forward to seeing, but I mean, I think if you want to know um, more detail, unfortunately, the way the NCAA's reporting system, it doesn't allow for much customization or additional commentary. Um, so you can ask the school for their agreed upon procedures report that their accountant provides, um, because that's got a little more detail in it. Um, you can also just ask the call the business office and ask them. A lot of them want to get the story straight. Um, so if you have good rapport yes. with them and you can have the good com the real conversations with them as opposed to solely relying on a FOIA and there's a lot of missing gaps, um, the conversation with the business office will help to paint a better picture. You know, it's interesting you mentioned kind of the money coming in at, at different times. And I, I kind of think back to a couple of years ago, there were some changes to the tax code uh, under the previous administration related to uh, certainly what the donors could write off in terms of those donations to to the athletic department. We saw some some I don't want to call it funny business, but we saw some of those donations move back to a prior year. So they could be tax deductible. Uh, we've even saw a, a excise tax on certain coaches making over over a million dollars as part of that uh, tax code changes. What have you seen from maybe some of the athletic departments you've worked with or or seen just in general in college athletics to how administrators have not only dealt with some of those changes, but just kind of spun them in their favor? Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is um, the tax code that changed for people um, making the per seat booster contribution, essentially um, each school calls it something different, but that's no longer considered a, a tax deductible charitable donation because you're getting something for it. You're getting the right to have the seat and, and all of that. So um, you would see some boosters who really relied on that front load it. And some schools really were strategic about saying, hey, go ahead and pay a few years ahead. You can reserve your seats. You can take a huge donation this year, knowing that in future years, we won't be able to. And they are tracking it um, generally in their ticketing systems of, okay, this was 2019 tickets, 2020, 2021, 22, 23, 24, et cetera. So, I mean, some were buying that far out. Um, other schools don't have the booster base that has that kind of money, um, at least, you know, large enough to really make a difference. So, um, those schools, you know, did not have that same advantage of essentially having a, a nice, healthy cash reserve to be able to rely on during the pandemic. Um, the other piece, um, the excise tax, yes, that's a, a tax that um, all nonprofits um, have to pay on any executives that make over a million dollars a year. So that, of course, any, um, you know, there's, it's kind of a gray area. Some universities um, that are government institutions took that as to being that they they did not qualify for that. Others took the opinion that they did. Um, and so there, I mean, that's a huge dollar amount that's now going out on the tax side um, for those highly compensated individuals. So you, you also mentioned kind of the, the reserve funds a little bit. Uh, we've seen some of the Power Five departments uh, out there, uh, Georgia comes to mind, having tens of millions of dollars kind of stocked away in, in essentially a reserve fund. From an accounting standpoint, how, how are those managed? How, how are they kind of budgeted for and, and used by athletic departments that, that do have those resources to where they do have a little bit saved away in their piggy banks? 
I mean, generally, if it's reserved, it's there for a reason. So sometimes it's the you know rainy day fund or the you know apocalypse fund. I fund, I guess, but generally it's some contributions that came in under a capital campaign to go toward some new big initiative, like a, a new building or something like that. Um, or it could be those pre-purchased tickets. I mean, those are the contributions for tickets for future years. So they're not budgeting that as an expense in the current year, um, but they might be taking that into consideration when you look at cash flow to say, okay, maybe we don't need to go try to get a loan because we have this to cover us. We'll kick the can and maybe we'll make it up or we'll, we'll get a loan later or we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, so in some cases they've had to say, okay, we're going to go ahead and tap into this. Some of them have been very intentional and said, you know, we, we have other ways to get funding. So we don't want to touch it because we don't want to be in trouble a few years down the road when we want to use it. Well, I want to, I want to ask about those loans for a second, because I, I, I've looked and seen, I think a couple of different approaches for how a university addresses a big athletic department deficit. Seen a couple of schools say we're going to go take out some very low interest loan from our uni the university itself. Uh, I want to say Cal uh, was a school that, that was one of the schools that decided to do this. I think there were a couple of Iowa. I think springs to mind too. You know, the university itself has a big budget. They can borrow money cheaply. We're going to pay it back. Um, other schools have refinanced the debt that they already have with with third parties. I know the Pac-12 said, you know, we'll help secure an external uh, loan for you. Is there a reason why a school would decide to borrow money from itself versus going externally? I, I would assume that any Power 5 school would, should be able to get money relatively cheaply because they all have almost all of them have guaranteed big income over the next decade. And, you know, we know where they work. We know they're probably going to be good for the money, right? Why, why would you pick one, one option over another? I mean, I think it depends on a lot of things like, um, you know, how heavily leveraged is the university or the athletic department? What other debt do you have out there? Are there state rules that prohibit you from taking more debt or prohibit you from using debt for general operations? Um, there are a lot of different reasons. Um, it could also be the university doesn't have cash, so you can't really borrow money from them when they, you know, they're struggling themselves. Um, some conferences were very fortunate in that, you know, they have, you know, media rights and a lot of other <clears throat> revenue streams that allow them to either loan the money or they might have secured outside um, funds um, and to handle it that way. Um, others advance, you know, it wasn't even a loan. It was more of just an advance of their revenues. So right. um, the SEC did something like that, right? Like, we're just going to, we're going to pay you a little bit of money up front to help tide you over. And it's going to come off the back end of this new 10 year deal. Right. Yes. So that, that's yeah. an example. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's not even a loan from the university. It's as much as the university just pays for things on behalf of athletics. And that's, always happened even before the pandemic. So in right. some cases, schools that maybe weren't as heavily subsidized by the university might've said, Hey, can we start talking about some of these things um, to try to, you know, cut help with some of the cash flow and other things like that. But I still struggle with that sometimes because many expenses of the athletic department 
our revenue to the university. So it's like moving money from the right pocket to the left pocket. And it's yeah. not really money leaving. Um, so, so in some of those cases, it's more where the numbers go as opposed to truly being an additional resource. That's a, that's a great point. And you and I and every economist on Twitter and a lot of other people, we, when they're talking about this principle, will often bring up scholarships, which on the FRS report and on paper represent a very significant cost to an athletic department. But for most institutions, it's still it's, it's still going to the same place. Essentially, it's a different department. But um, the, 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 the physical actual cost of educating a student is not 60 grand or whatever a scholarship might, might be actually valued as. I've seen this too with, with the way that some sponsorship money comes in or where an athletic department might like have to pay to lease intellectual property from a different university department or the way that, that maybe a shirt sold in the bookstore get, goes from place to place. It, it can get pretty messy if you don't know what you're looking for, right? Correct. And, and yeah, so when you're looking at those transactions between the two, you've got that example. Scholarships is the biggest example. Um, but you also have tuition waivers even um, right. so where they're not even charging um, for the tuition or um, reducing, you know, honoring in-state tuition for out-of-state athletes, um, things like that. Um, and then even, you know, housing costs, um, dining and some of those other types of um, expenses or even utilizing, um, you know, it's university employees in most cases that work for the athletics department. So maybe some of the university is um, covering some of their salary, even though they're solely dedicated to athletics. So that's another example. It's a good point. I have two other, maybe a little bit uh, less traditional questions. So one other, one concern that's popped up, a lot over the last year and, and more so over the last two weeks as we get much closer to the name image like this era actually kicking off. So I've, I've heard some conference officials and ADs say, we're really concerned that this is going to take a huge chunk out of our booster, um, the, our booster related revenue over the next year. And a local business or a local rich person who might have given the athletic department a thousand dollars might decide to just give that directly to an athlete and that will hurt our budget uh, processes. Do you think that that's a legitimate concern? And is there anything that a school, either in how they ask for money or how they budget money or deal with money that they could do to alleviate that potential concern? It's definitely a concern, especially coming off of a pandemic. Um, and I bless his heart, Trevor Lawrence, we keep using him as an example, but I mean, a Trevor yeah. Lawrence, when you're in a community like Clemson, very likely um, that that could happen. Um, but when you look at urban markets, they've dealt with this all along because they're competing with pro athletes that, that have been able to get sponsorship dollars from these same people all along. So I don't know how many of these athletes are going to be so highly paid that it's going to make a significant impact on a university. Um, I think a, the pandemic's probably going to be a larger impact. Honestly, I've heard cases where social justice has become an impact. Um, so, um, you know, I think those are going to be bigger yeah. issues than NIL as far as where's, where people's contributions go, um, especially if there's guardrails that really are pretty strict in protecting from 
um, a booster trying to entice a recruit. Um, so, I mean, I, I can see that's where maybe it would be abused, but maybe in a, a potentially agreed upon arrangement, but that doesn't seem to be, a, you know, that's not going to really be an allowable transaction. So um, aside from a true, genuinely, I want you to come and do commercials for my car dealership and I'm going to give you a car to drive. Um, and therefore I'm not giving the university money. Um, I mean, I think the car dealer is still going to go to games and still going to want those seats and make those booster contributions to get there. That's a, that's a good point. And when I think, honestly, even when I think about a couple of the schools that have raised this objection to me, I could look at that report and think, you really weren't getting a whole lot of booster money anyway. You know, if, if you're a, a really small division one institution and you're only bringing in five figures in local corporate donations or, or even local rich people donations anyway, and you lose 25% of that, I mean, yeah, it stinks, but it's not that much money. You could probably find $8,000 in your annual budget somewhere if if the, the local pizza shop decides to only donate to Weber State athletes instead of Weber State or, or some other random school, right? Like I, that that passes the sniff test to me, but also, you know, I'm, my, my livelihood doesn't depend on that. Well, and I think a bigger issue potentially um, with NIL and funding for some of those smaller schools is if an athlete earns just enough to lose their Pell Grant, and then now they're not having stacked financial aid, or in some cases, athletes get um, federal aid and then a partial athletic scholarship. Um, and if athletics isn't able to fully cover them, um, they may have to drop out if they can't afford it because they're not rolling in the dough from NIL. They right. just got enough. And then once they pay taxes and, you know, buy something nice for themselves, it's like it's all gone and it's going to be a wash. So um, I could see some smaller institutions that have a lot of federally funded student athletes um, struggle with maybe a decline in enrollment or, um, you know, even some recruiting challenges because an athlete may try to go somewhere else where maybe there's more money available to cover their um, tuition because they've lost their Pell Grant. Sure. That's, that's something we already kind of see at the division two or the NAIA level where students are not on or individuals are not on a full headcount scholarships and how you divvy up the Pell Grant money and what's available from the state and how that works with your income. It's a significant uh, recruiting uh, situ you know, situation that has to be resolved as everyone's trying to stay under the proverbial salary cap. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's going to now trickle up into the FCS and mid-major schools. It, sure. it probably won't hit group of five or power five too badly, but those smaller schools are going to struggle, I think. Let me ask you one other kind of dumb question. Um, my understanding is that when you look at university endowments or, or the endowments that athletic departments might, might set up, a lot of those are in relatively conservative investment vehicles where you know there's going to be a, a, as predictable as possible rate of return and you're only taking a little bit out of it and it's going to be there for a long time. And uh, my understanding is that with a couple of, of institutions have experimented with maybe a little bit more exotic assets that they might invest some of their money in, whether perhaps real estate. Or, or foreign bonds. I'm wondering if in any of your conversations in this industry, have you heard about athletic departments or individuals around the space talking about trying to more aggressively get their departments into um, more exotic alternative assets like a cryptocurrency or art or, or, or something that's a little bit less liquid and a little bit more volatile? 
I mean, I would say a lot of universities have had a pretty diverse mix of, you know, what's traditionally called alternative investment is private equity or a hedge fund and doing some of that as well as um, some lower risk, you know, mutual funds or bonds or things like that. But once you get into the the bigger, you know, crazy alternatives like crypto, I haven't heard any conversations around cryptocurrency. Um, I have seen university foundations invest in art. Um, not necessarily to go for athletics endowments, but I mean, in most cases where an endowment's held in their foundation, it's not like this endowment's invested in this fund and this one's in this fund. All the endowments are together invested in the same thing. Um, so with art, real estate, things like that. But, um, you know, one thing that is intriguing to me, and I don't know that an endowment would invest in this, but I think it's another potential alternative revenue generator or NFTs. Um, I don't know where that's going yet, but I have seen, you know, like Stephen F. Austin is one that yep. kind of played around with it. Um, I'm I'm really interested to see where, if anywhere, that goes and if that could be a potential revenue generator for athletics. You know, Matt, Matt and I have discussed uh, quite a bit the challenges and some of the issues that public schools versus private schools and kind of the difference between those two. Uh, I'm, I'm curious from an accounting standpoint, what are some of the differences that, that you notice operating if you're a public school versus a private one beyond maybe just you know regulation and trying to get out, outside of some of these uh, FOIA requests that uh, Matt sends them? Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think sometimes in what I've seen in private schools, is the, the silos may not be as big. So they're generally all working for a common mission and they have to kind of band together to raise their money because they're not funded by the state government. Um, so, so there's, I see some of that, but as far as how they operate and how they spend their money, it's very similar. Um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, certain revenue streams, it doesn't matter what, you know, tuition, ticket sales, um, you know, multimedia rights, that those types of revenue streams, it doesn't matter if it's a public or a private institution. Really, I think it's more on the this um, the funding, like government funding or not. And, and we've kind of seen even a middle ground between the two with certain public schools kind of spending their athletic departments out into uh, what, uh, direct support at organizations or something like that, uh, essentially spending their athletic department out. What are the, what are the advantages of, of that versus, say, operating fully as underneath a, a public school university? Besides getting to hide from pesky reporters like me, which I might just quickly add, is extremely immoral. And I'm very disappointed in that. Well, in some cases, they're still subject to the same uh, regulations that their university that is a public institution. Um, you know, the state of Florida has what's called sunshine laws, and there are multiple associations within the state of Florida. Um, sometimes it's just to have a little bit more independent operations, um, different levels of governance, um, uh, auto more autonomy to do things with some of the funds that they raise. But you know, they're called an affiliated entity or a direct support organization for a reason. So they're still very highly integrated um, with their university. Some of them even um, are university employees. Um, Georgia Tech's an example of that, um, where everyone that's in their athletic association is an employee of the university. Um, there are others that have, um, they may not even be spun out into an athletic association, but they rely a lot on their 501c3 booster clubs to 
perform some of the transactions for them, like um, coaching bonuses or or some of those types of um, items. So I think it just it's varied on each institution. Um, there's not one real reason why they do that, um, but there was a reason that made them do it. But that reason was probably different for everybody. Katie, I, I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time here to chat with us. Uh, real quick, where can our listeners and my readers find other insights from you and your colleagues about how to make sense of all this stuff? Yeah, so um, you can go to our firm's website, uh, jmco.com, and navigate um, through our industries tab to the Collegiate Athletics. There are a lot of resources, whether it's articles. Um, we have a podcast called News and Brew Sports Biz that is available on Apple, Spotify, um, where we talk a lot about the business of college sports and advocate for those financial voices. Um, so definitely check that out. I think it's us, uh, you know, a different perspective for you to see as you're starting to sift through some of that financial information and try to tell the story around it. That's wonderful. Katie, thank, thank you again. We'll be happy to direct people there as always. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Brian. On the off chance that you're not familiar with it already, this podcast is also you know, a product. It's a partnership here with Extra Points. That's, the, that's my newsletter that publishes four days a week and digs into all of these same kind of stories, all of the off-the-field stuff that shapes college athletics. So if you really want to get in the weeds about not just state and federal and NCAA name, image, and likeness legislation, uh, or about uh, how schools decide what new sports to sponsor or what sports they should get rid of or what makes uh, what, what how the, where the direction of the college athlete rights movement is going now that we've reached some sort of stopping point with name image like this. These are all extra points type stories. Uh, I know like, I think next week uh, I've got a story where I've talked to a couple of university presidents who are starting a new uh, non NCAA football league and it's 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 sprint football. Right. So it's football, college football, but with a weight limit. Uh, nobody's over, no one's allowed to be over 180 pounds. I have an interview with them and a couple of other athletic leaders. We have some weird compliance questions coming up. Um, they're fun stories. I'm, I'm able to tell them with your support. You can subscribe for free, get two newsletters, listen to Brian and I talk on the podcast for free. I'd like you to do that. But you can get four newsletters and access to our Discord for, for just for subscribers for just eight bucks a month. But because you're, you're smart, you're wise, you've been listening to this podcast, I'll cut you a little bit of a deal. You can use promo code podcast when you are at checkout and you get 20% off, whether you're buying monthly or annually. If you do an annually, you actually save quite a bit of money if you really like extra points. Um, so I'd encourage you, use promo code podcast um, when checking out to extrapointsmb.com to make sure you're getting the full extra points, the full going for two experience and make sure that you're not missing out on any of the big stories off the field that shape what we see on the field. Brian, I, I, I think this, this was an illuminating conversation because trying to tease information out of these reports can be really challenging. And we're, the, 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 next, the next batch of reports that we're going to get are going to look way different from any others that any, any media member, any reporter, any, any fan has really seen in years because COVID just blew a hole in everybody's athletic department. 
mean, we mentioned a little bit uh, talking before we started recording just the the difficulty that that not only these college athletic departments are going to have, but just kind of us understanding it from the outside in terms of where the dollars and cents are. It's going to be a multi-year process. It it really is to kind of sort out not only what what kind of revenue they lost last year, what kind of revenue shortfalls they are looking at going forward, but also how everything is accounted for. And we kind of got into that a little bit with, with Katie there in terms of some of those buckets that we're going to see. Yeah. And it is going to be uh, when we are looking at certain financial statements compared to others, uh, apples to apples, apples to oranges, apples to, as she mentioned, rocket ships. It, it's it's all going to take a lot of sorting out from. And it, it's going to be quite quite the headache for not only the folks in Indianapolis that are tasked with kind of drilling down into some of these numbers and gaining some insights, but also us on the outside trying to see out, see just how much money these athletic departments lost and during during the covid pandemic and what what they really have to work with coming out of it as well if there's one thing that i want you to or anybody listening to this to take away uh from any conversation here about financial reporting and college sports is that like these reports and what you see in the usa today database which is a great resource or in 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 conventional stories here is that your athletic department doesn't just put out a plan old PL. They're not a for-profit enterprise. They're not trying to generate a profit at the end. And it's not, it's really not so easy to just look at that and go figure out money in, money out and, and make some statement about its financial health. One of the big reasons that I think it's really important to get these, these documents and these records out in front of the public is so then other accountants and grad students and researchers and people who really live in this world can more easily access them to help tease out though that information working from the original records and the original pdfs original chapter and verse i think it's always going to give us better data even for for lay people like you and i but the more people can actually see this the the more outside context they can bring in to go tell a story um i think we're gonna you're gonna see a couple of headlines in like nine months that are gonna cause you to do a little bit of a double take and then maybe when you dig into the math a little bit more it's not going to be quite as crazy as it originally sounded whether in terms of deficit loss uh, revenue here there it's it's not quite as easy as it is for when i do my own books oh yeah and, and it's also important to remember that the size of these athletic departments varies so greatly and and even the so re- much. reason why they are funding athletics uh, to varying dis- degrees you know varies so much you know if you take you know clemson a, a power five program competing at the highest level in terms of sports like football and men's basketball and baseball and whatnot, you know, what, what their motivations are in terms of some of the capital projects, some of the funding for their coaching staff, even some of their revenue sources is going to be a lot different from a school like Stanford on the opposite coast, who certainly sponsors a lot more Olympic sports athlete, uh, athletes and has to deal with some of the issues related to that. Uh, Especially t- now that they lost the lawsuit. Exactly. And, and yeah. even taking in fewer, you know, fewer, uh, a lot less money in terms of the, the power five uh, distributions that uh, you see will vary across there. And then that you can step it down to the FCS level into division two, II, division three and AI. Uh, a lot of these schools, we've mentioned direct sport quite a bit uh, on this podcast. We, we mentioned in the conversation uh, just now, I mean, those direct support costs, uh, you know, the reason that the university is supporting their athletic department is because they, they do want their kind of broader base and, and add something to the experience not only the athletes at, at the schools, but but also the general student body as well. You're you're right. Um, it, it is both a strength and a enormous sense of uh, frustration about not just Division One, but American higher ed generally. That we have a lot of really different kind of schools. Schools sponsor athletics for very different reasons, even within Division One. Whether it's an Ohio State or a Clemson, where this is 
the uh, not only a leading economic engine for the department, but a, like a, one of the biggest cultural institutions in the entire state. And you couple that with Youngstown, where they're just this is an enrollment play. They're just trying to get people to show up and pay tuition. And for some, it's for religious reasons. And for some, it's ideological reasons or political reasons or trying to change your, your, your campus experience. And that's all going to be reflected in the finances. I'm going to share a couple of other resources that Katie passed along here in our show notes to help uh, lay people understand some of this information a little bit better, and maybe even some professionals. So for our athletic director and university president friends uh, who may be following along to help them un unpack some of this data a little bit more. Um, Brian, where can the people on the internet continue to find the stuff you're working on right now? Well, beyond this, this excellent podcast that we we're doing together once again uh, on Twitter at Brian D. Fisher, B-R-Y-A-N-D-F-I-S-C-H-E-R is the best place to find me. Um, and I am at Matt Brown EP. You can shoot me an email at Matt at extrapointsmb.com. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm tanned. I'm rested. I'm ready after uh, a little bit of time here in the canyons. I'm really excited about a couple of these extra points newsletters that are coming through here uh, and some other resources here for the FOIA directory. So I would encourage you uh, to subscribe, to read, to listen, and take a part of this whole community that we're building, not just this podcast. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. I'm Matt. That's Bryant. We'll catch up with you next week. 